Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. Discrimination and violence in this country against people of Asian descent, unfortunately, is not new. But there has been a surge of violence against people in the Asian community beginning in 2020, which has been largely fueled by the racist rhetoric from Trump associated with COVID-19. Since 2020, Asian hate crimes have risen exponentially, and there were 3,800 anti-Asian racist incidents, mostly against women, this past year. Just last month, on March 16th, there was a mass shooting in Atlanta that killed eight, including six women of Asian descent. Two weeks later, a brutal, unprovoked attack of an Asian elderly woman walking to church was captured on video. And in the video, we can see bystanders who just observed the attack yet did nothing to intervene or to aid her. On this evening's show, we're gonna talk about the violence that's being perpetrated against members of the Asian community. We're also going to talk about how the Black and Asian communities can join in solidarity to address issues of violence. Joining us for this discussion, we have North Carolina State Senator Jay Chaudhry, who represents the 15th District. We also have Chavi Konaru, who is the co-founder and executive director of the North Carolina Asian American Together organization. We also have joining us one of our frequent guests, Dorothy Harrison Mitchell. She is a North Carolina Central University School of Law clinical law professor and a supervising attorney of the juvenile clinic. Thank you all for joining us this evening. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. Yes, thanks for having us. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. So what we'd like to do first is to have each of you share a little bit about yourselves, um, your background, and tell us what you do. All three of you are attorneys and work very closely in the community. Um, Senator, let's start with you. Yeah, um, well, thanks for having me on, uh, Professor Dawson and Professor Joyner on uh, one of my favorite radio stations, WNCU. Um, a little bit about myself, I am a uh, son of immigrants. My parents came to this country more than 50 years ago. We settled down in Fayetteville in Eastern North Carolina where I grew up, um, uh, went to college here in North Carolina, um, grad school in New York City, and then ultimately returned back to attend law school at North Carolina Central University where Professor Joyner was teaching at the time. Um, and after that, uh, because of uh, an incredibly positive experience that uh, my parents and I had uh, um, living in the state as, uh, as a new immigrant family, uh, it was important for me to give back um, to the community. And as a result, I decided to go and, and enter into public service. Uh, that first began by clerking at the Court of Appeals, uh, then hop, had the opportunity to serve as legislative counsel to a state senator by the name of Roy Cooper, 
then joined uh, Senator Cooper as Attorney General Cooper when he served at the Attorney General's office for eight years and then um, then served as six years as a general counsel to our former state treasurer. Uh, in 2015, I made a decision to um, run for office. I uh, won in 2016 in the primary, uh, was subsequently appointed to fill out and complete the term of uh, Senator Josh Stein, who is now our attorney general, and have now been serving the legislature for five years. Um, the last two years as Senate Minority Whip, which is the second highest ranking uh, member among Senate Democrats. Uh, I also, because uh, the legislature is part-time, I also practice with a uh, class action firm based out of Washington, D.C., where um, I focus on both uh, securities litigation and uh, civil rights litigation um, as well. Great, thank you. And Attorney Koneru. Yeah, um, thank you. So I'm Shabi Kana Koneru. Um, both my parents uh, also immigrated from India, but I think my experience was slightly different. Um, because my dad came over when he was 17, um, got into Harvard because it was the only college he'd ever heard of in the U.S., um, and worked his way up. Uh, my mom came over after she was married. And I think because of their different experiences, I grew up probably in a more liberal environment than um, a lot of other folks in my community. Um, I was born in Oakland, California. I have to say this because I just recently discovered that Vice President Harris and I went to the same elementary school. So I'm very proud of that. Um, and, I, you know, I grew up kind of in a lower income, very diverse neighborhood. So it's not that I didn't see race growing up. It's just I didn't know what I was versus my neighbor versus the person down the street. It wasn't until I moved to North Carolina, um, right down the street from NC Central University, that I suddenly became very aware of my identity, my race. Um, and I remember feeling a lot of confusion at having to explain to classmates that I was Indian with a dot, not a feather, which at the time, right, that was, was a big conversation. Um, so, you know, anyways, I went to UNC for, college um, and then later for law school. Um, and the reason I went to law school is that when I was in high school, um, I went to a small Quaker school and I had the opportunity to do a two week uh, service, community service internship. And I ended up working um, at a small law firm in Chapel Hill. Um, it was actually just like an office shared by two attorneys who were um, Al McSurley and Ashley Osmond and they were civil rights attorneys. And I did not know what civil rights law was, but I was enamored by them. So I was like, this is what I wanna do with my life. And then uh, I actually thought about going to Central, but um, my first day of orientation at UNC Law School, Ashley Osman was my volunteer leader. And I was like, this is a sign. I've, this is the path I've meant to follow. Um, and I had a, a lot of really great opportunities to, Kind of work in voting rights law. Um, I took uh, classes with um, Professor Julius Chambers and um, worked at the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights um, and in the voting section of the Department of Justice. But it wasn't until I was a federal observer um, in 2008, uh, at the 2008 election, that I began to see how this issue impacted the Asian American community. 
um, I kind of saw voting rights and civil rights as something that really was exclusively focused on the black community. And so that all eventually, you know, I practiced, uh, I did some civil litigation and immigration law before I moved in DC, before I moved back to North Carolina, but it eventually led me to the point where I realized, hey, there's no one reaching out to our community. We're dealing with the same voter suppression issues as other communities of color. And that's sort of how NCAT was born. All right, very, very interesting. Well, we're looking forward to hearing more about the organization. Um, Professor Harrison Mitchell. Yes, um, thank you for having me. As I stated before, it's always good to be a guest on the show. Um, I will start with professionally. So as um, Professor Dawson said, I am a clinical professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law, where I teach criminal law, um, but I also run the juvenile law clinic in which my students represent children um, in juvenile delinquency court, and we represent children um, in those that have been referred for long-term suspension matters as well. Um, before coming to the law school in 2016 full-time, I was an adjunct professor here, um, serving in different capacities um, as an adjunct or teaching in different capacities as an adjunct. But I was a public assistant public defender in the public defender's office here in Durham, where I represented parents in abuse, neglect, dependency cases, as well as um, some criminal matters. And before that, um, before going to the public defender's office, I practiced in my own law firm in which I did pretty much the whole gamut. I ran a general practice. For my entire career, I have always focused, as you heard, on um, any legal issues as it relates to children, um, advocacy for children, and then, of course, the um, parents in uh, abuse, neglect, dependency cases. That have been primarily my focus, but like I said, I did a lot of criminal defense and traffic and some other things, too. Um, so professionally and personally, I always bring to the table who I am as a person. I cannot operate in any other way. Um, I am, as I would tell people, do not label me and put me in one box. I am African-American and I am Korean. I am both. Um, my mother is Korean or was Korean. She passed away in 2015, but she was Korean from South Korea. I have to say that for some reason, I have to say that to people because people are like, from which one? I'm like, uh, how would my mom be from North Korea? But anyway, um, South Korea. And then uh, my father is African-American. My dad, my dad is from a really small town in Stokes County called Walnut Cove, North Carolina. Professor Joyner is very familiar with that area. A lot of people are not familiar. So I have to tell people it's north of Winston-Salem and they're like, oh, okay, I know what you're talking about. Um, the Greensboro, Winston-Salem area. And then my mom, when she, she married, my dad and my mom married, kind of, and I say typical situation that arises in how my parents met when my dad was in the military and he went to Korea um, and he met my mother and they got married and my mother came here to the United States. So she immigrated here to the United States. Um, and then they eventually separated and were divorced. And so I was raised, um, even though I wasn't raised with them together, I was raised to understand and appreciate both sides of who I am um, from both of them. And it's it's funny to a lot of people. Or I wouldn't say funny, ironic to a lot of people. My dad taught me a whole lot about the Korean side of me because he was so enamored by the Korean culture and he appreciated and he respected it and still does to this day respect it so much that he ensured that me and my brother learned any and everything that we could about who we are. And then, of course, on my mom's side, who she when they um, separated, she was in the military herself. She actually retired from the military, but she retired in the um, Fayetteville, North Carolina, Fort Bragg. 
And so if you know anything about the Fort Bragg, Fayetteville area, it is full of Koreans. Um, and so whenever I was with my mom, we were engulfed in the Korean culture, even though we weren't in South Korea. So that is my background. Um, and I'm sure we'll go delve into a whole lot more, but that's essentially who I am. All right, excellent. Thank you all for that. So as, as we begin this discussion, I think it, it would be helpful for our audience and, and for us as well to get a sense. So we've been saying Asian community, and when we're looking at you know, violence that's being perpetrated, it's, it's being perpetrated by uh, or against a large community. Let's start with the definition of Asian community. So when we say that, what does that encompass? I would say that encompasses any person that is from any, has any descent from any country or place from the Asian continent, quite frankly. And what we're talking about here in the United States are those people who are here in the, you know, the Asian community here in the United States. And so that's what would be my definition. Of course, unfortunately, a lot of people are not as educated as we would like for them to be. So when they hear Asian, they immediately think of certain groups, Japanese, Indian. Well, sometimes actually they don't think of Indian. <laughs> um, they actually think Japanese, Chinese maybe a little bit more Korean now, Vietnamese, because those are, you know, you think about, and people usually associate them with certain things. So Japanese food, Chinese food, you know, Japanese objects or Chinese objects, and then Koreans and Vietnamese, for whatever reason, they're more associated with like the spas and nail salons and all of those different things. Unfortunately, that's how people kind of correlate. But it, we all know that our part of the Asian community, it encompasses far more people than that. I, I, I was going to say, uh, Professor Dawson, Professor Mitchell is right. And I think uh, Chubby can shed more insight because I think that's one of the things that she um, has to tackle is really how broad and diverse the Asian American community is. I mean, you know, the term is really Asian American Pacific Islander. I'll let Chubby talk about uh, that term because we were having a conversation a couple of weeks ago after the vigil about the the aspect of Pacific Islander being tagged onto that. But I mean, it is dozens of countries um, that are very different from each other. In some ways that can be a challenge, but in other ways it can be an asset. Uh, but as Professor Mitchell mentioned, uh, you know, I think, I think oftentimes you see with Asian Americans that maybe that they think more about East Asian Americans, which are, you know, China, Japan, Korea, uh, versus South Asian Americans, which are those from the South Asian subcontinent, such as India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Nepal. Uh, but ultimately, you know, all of that falls under the definition of Asian Americans. Yeah, um, I can chime in a little here. Um, what I'll say is that growing up, when I had to check the box that said Asian because I didn't fit in anywhere else, I, I never felt like that defines me. Um, and I want to be clear that, like, I try not to use the term Asian to describe the community aside from using it in terms of a political identity. So it's reclaiming the term in a way that is beneficial to our community. Together, we have a powerful uh, voting block. Together, we should hopefully someday we'll be aligned on issues more. And the Pacific Islander piece is definitely a challenge. Um, we recently made the decision organizationally to stop using the term AAPI, which refers to Asian American Pacific Islander, because we felt like we we weren't engaging with the Pacific Islander community enough 
to represent that we could speak to them, speak on their behalf in, in any way. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think we were talking about this too. I mean, younger folks have all kinds of different abbreviations and acronyms now. So there's AAPIDA, which is includes uh, Desi Americans, which is Desi is another word for Indians. I've never had anyone outside of my own community call me Desi. So I think I would be pretty offended if someone did. Um, and you know, these I will be offended keep, for you. Yeah. You. <laughs> these things keep changing and evolving. And I'm not sure that we can, I mean, really, we shouldn't be using the term Asian to describe a very, very diverse group of people. And in, in just North Carolina, there's people from 40 different ethnicities that are grouped as Asian. But I think it's super beneficial to use that as a political term. And that's that's kind of where it came from. Like it was coined by a political activist in 1970. And that's how we use it. All right. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we are talking this hour about the violence that we are seeing in the Asian American community. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Jay Chaudhry, who is the North Carolina State Senator for the 15th District. Chavi Konaru, who is the co-founder and executive director of the North Carolina Asian Americans Together, or NCAT, organization, and Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, clinical law professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law. We're going to have to take a quick break, but we will be right back. We hope you stay with us. I'm Nastasia Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. Every day, a woman dies from preventable causes related to pregnancy and childbirth. Maternal mortality rates in the United States are the worst in the developed world, with 26.4 deaths per 100,000 live births. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, more than 60% of pregnancy-related deaths in America are preventable. The situation is even more dire for Black women who experience disproportionately high rates of complications and death related to pregnancy or childbirth. The causes are complex, but racism is a driving force. Even a Black woman with a college degree is more likely to die from giving birth than a white woman without a high school diploma. Black women are also twice as likely to lose an infant to premature death. Both societal and health system factors contribute to high rates of poor health outcomes and maternal mortality for Black women who are more likely to experience barriers to obtaining quality care and often face racial discrimination throughout their lives. In 2019, Congresswomen Alma Adams and Lauren Underwood launched the Black Maternal Health Caucus. The organization focuses around the goals of elevating the Black maternal health crisis within Congress and advancing policy solutions to improve maternal health outcomes and end disparities. With 53 founding members, the caucus has grown to be one of the largest bipartisan caucuses in Congress, with more than 100 members as of 2020. More information is at blackmaternalhealthcaucus-underwood.house.gov, npr.org, and nih.gov. Virtual justice at NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasia Harris. Thanks for listening.
Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us as we uh, continue this conversation uh, this evening where we're talking about uh, uh, violence against uh, the Asian American uh, communities and the uh, Black and Asian community uh, solidarity. We have uh, outstanding experts uh, with us with us to uh, talk about uh, that, uh, that, that topic. Uh, we, we were talking about the, I guess, the breadth of the uh, Asian community uh, in the uh, United States. And uh, uh, Chevy added, added uh, the Pacific Islanders, but you didn't really uh, explain to us who constitute Pacific Islanders. Uh, a lot of people don't know, uh, even though a lot of people visit uh, that area uh, of the world uh, quite often. So can you kind of talk about the uh, uh, specific Islanders? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, I can. Um, so it actually encompasses, um, I, I feel like I'm not the- Polynesia. Um, Hawaii, Hawaii, yeah, Fiji. um, yeah, Samoans. <laughs> he, well, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that there's a very diverse collection mm -hmm. of uh, different people in different parts of the world who have uh, settled uh, here in uh, in the United States, and uh, so let me just ask first of all. What kind of uh, political cohesion or community cohesion exists between the uh, several different groups that, uh, that you've named? In terms of Asian American communities? Yes. Um, I think that that's a tricky question to answer because um, it maybe is, that's what we're working on. That's the challenge is that we want it to be more cohesive. And I, and the, the reasons that it often isn't all kind of go back to the same roots as the problems that other communities of color are dealing with, right? Like it all goes back to being a result of white supremacy, colorism, the model minority myth, all these things that lead some folks in our community to want to assimilate, to want to try to be as close to whiteness as possible. And that's when our values don't align and um, you know, our political goals don't align. But I think it's, what's interesting about this moment is that it has brought the entire Asian American community together in a way that at least I have never seen before. And other folks who might have been on earth longer than me might have different opinions. But, um, and I'd say in particular, as someone who's from the Indian community, I have never seen the Indian or South Asian community be this involved when it's something that really impacts it. the recent attacks and the, the rise in discrimination and hate crimes against Asian Americans has specifically been towards folks who are perceived to be East Asian. Mm -hmm. and there is finally this moment and this issue where the community is coming together and saying, this is not okay. And I mean, I know we'll be discussing this more later, but seeing the 
you just seeing the the similarities and the struggles between what the Asian community is dealing with now and kind of the Black Lives Matter, all the issues that came up after the George Floyd murder. And it, so it feels like this really special moment in time where maybe we can all come together and realize that we're in this struggle together and we're not gonna win until we realize that. I would completely agree that this is a different time and that we all the Asian communities are coming together in a really good way. I will venture to say though, and be more transparent and just be honest in, in that some of the reason why there, there hasn't been that coming together before, in my perception, or at least in my experience, has been because there is some, um, what's the word? There, a lot of the Asian communities are not, we're not so interested in coming together with other Asian communities or other groups because of the discourse between them. Um, for instance, a lot of Koreans are not gonna be so happy and excited and jumping up and down about coming together with Japanese folks or Japanese people because of the historical, um, you know, the history between the two groups um, and how, and for those of you out there in radio land who don't know, Japanese people took Korean people as slaves like white people took black people as slaves. And so that's a, his, a history there that is very negative that is still ranked you know, is woven into the, the, the narrative and the, and the mindset of a lot of Koreans still to this day. So it is very disrespectful and offensive for someone to call a Korean person a Japanese person. So when someone says, are you Japanese? That's very offensive. It's so much better to say, what are you? <laughs> I mean, that sounds crazy too, but I'd rather have that question than are you Japanese and making that assumption because that's very offensive. So that's one. And then the other side is that a lot of, as um, Shavi said, a lot of it is um, somewhat to do with these groups wanting to assimilate in white culture and, you know, white supremacy and all of that. But I would actually say it has, well, in a lot of ways, from what I've seen, has been more about economics and the opportunities that are out there. So I've seen more Asian groups align themselves with the ideal or those groups that more align with them um, economically, you know, the opportunities that are presented. And uh, sometimes it just so happens to be that it's the white community, right? But it's more of their, their thoughts and um, values and things are, well, in which way, who is going to be, who should I support because they are aligned with what I think of economically? And where am I going to get the, mo the better opportunities? Um, so that, those would be the two pieces that I would add to, to that. I would, um, I would say a, a few things. I think, number one, I think for the most part, I mean, there is a long history of the Chinese who worked on the railroads here, as well as the Japanese American community that came here as well. But for the most part, because of the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, uh, which my parents are a direct product of, uh, the Asian American community is a relatively young community. And I think to you know, Professor Mitchell's point, uh, you bring you bring a lot of the history uh, and rivalry of those countries mm -hmm. with you, which I, I think uh, erects a barrier and sometimes makes it hard for communities to to work together. Um, number two, uh, one thing that I think has been positive for the Asian American communities, it certainly has been you know trending towards supporting uh, the de Democrats versus Republicans. I mean, I think if you look at early polling data, 
uh, Asian Americans were much more split right when it was John Kerry versus George Bush. But uh, President Obama certainly, I think, accelerated a lot of the support from the Asian American community. And I think uh, what we saw with the Biden-Harris ticket uh, continued that trend. Um, and I think the other thing to point out, uh, and Chavi gets a lot of credit for this, is the, you know, we, we saw record turnout of Asian American uh, voters in this presidential cycle, because one of the things that people realized is that in battleground states where you were winning the presidency by only, you know, a few thousand votes, a small community like the Asian American community can actually make a difference. And that's why you saw uh, record turnout in Asian American communities such as North Carolina, which Chavi's organization deserves a lot of credit for. Uh, and then the, you know, the last thing I will say is, you know, when you when we look at the the Harris, the Biden Harris election, I mean, a lot of that is also a product of Donald Trump and the anti-Asian rhetoric that he's engaged in over the last four years, which I think was really an awakening uh, for the Asian American community to realize that we needed to be more engaged in order to kind of uh, be be part of the system and to be more politically engaged, so that we don't have leaders like this that are. Um, that that are making Asian Americans look like they're the others or foreigners in this country. I agree. You know, one one of the things that uh, over the years we've not heard a lot about is uh, violence and discrimination directed against uh, members of these uh, various uh, Asian uh, communities. But I do know that uh, after 9-11, uh, for instance, there was an upsurge of violence against some uh, components of the uh, Asian community. And then uh, just recently, uh, information about that. So can you kind of talk about why has there been a downplay of the uh, discrimination that uh, members of the uh, of Asian communities uh, face here uh, in, uh, in this country? Why there's been a downplay? Why isn't it... Uh, widely known uh, by people in the community about the depth of this discrimination and bias, uh, bias and violence that's been directed against those communities. Because while it's been going on, mm -hmm. it has not been really publicized that it, is, uh, that it is going on, such that people now, after what, 3,800 incidents uh, just since uh, 2020, uh, seemingly shocked. Uh, that uh, there is this kind of activities going on within the country? That's a hard question. I think that my initial gut reaction to that question is that some of it has to do with the widespread media um, and what they're, you know, willing to focus on. And of course, they want to, they're going to sensationalize those things that's going to get them um, viewers and all of that good stuff. And until recently, uh, with you know COVID nineteen and you know Trump um, and all his comments and different things, speaking about violence against Asian Americans or Asians in general was not, you know, they just didn't pay that wanted to focus on it. It just didn't bring a lot of you know numbers and viewers and all of that. Um, the other side of it is that a lot of times, not a lot of times, there is just miseducation or um, lack of education altogether. And I say that to mean that a lot of these folks see it as, like, for instance, I'll use the, at least what I perceive as the perception of Indian Americans or Indians, right? As in from India. Um, a lot of folks, for some reason, group them as white people. 
And so if there's violence against them, they see it as just that's just typical old just, you know, things that are going on. It's been more publicized now because we have these Asian American, Chinese Americans and, you know, different folks who are willing to speak out. And those younger people that um, Jay was talking about, we have much younger Asian community here. They're willing to speak out against these things, whereas culturally, um, at least I know as far as my experience on the Korean culture, a lot of things you just don't speak about publicly. Uh, what you just don't speak about and or you don't realize that you have a voice to speak about it. There's other things that you're focused on, like your family. You know, family is huge. It's about, you know, raising your children and making sure they get the education they have and all of that good stuff. So some things just innately as a community, you know, they, they just didn't come out and speak about it. And so I think that, you know, we're giving people a voice and it, like uh, Jay's giving Shavi a lot of credit, which I'll, I'll give you credit too, that giving people this voice or making them realize that you do have a voice and you have a voice individually and we definitely have a voice collectively. And I think that is why we're hearing more about it because all the groups are coming together and saying, well, we're not gonna allow you to, you know, we're not gonna be okay with you, you know, exerting this kind of violence and racism on our fellow Asians, you know what I mean? Even though they're not a part of our group. Yeah, um, I appreciate the credit. <laughs> I think there's two main reasons and I'm gonna circle back, um, Professor Mitchell, what you said earlier in terms of, um, the folks who are maybe more affluent, not aligning for that reason. And I I would push back slightly on that because I still think that the root of all that is white supremacy for this reason. So the model minority myth was first used in a news article in, I, I think, 1966 or so. And it was used to describe the Japanese American population as being hardworking and having good ethics and what it did was made this particular ethnicity, it wasn't just Asian Americans in general, it was also within the Asian community, it made some ethnicities better than yes, others, right? And then there's also the whole idea of, of our community, this not being in the news because our community is quieter and we like mm. to keep things to ourselves. Yes. That also all goes back to the model minority myth and having a feeling um, that we shouldn't raise our voices because that makes us bad immigrants. And we want to be, and not just bad immigrants, but bad minorities, right? And that's what really created that wedge between us and the Black community is, oh, well, they're being loud. And so maybe we have the same struggles, but we're the ones being quiet over here. So the white people are going to like us more. I mean, just to be blunt, there's that, right? I think the other part of this, which, you know, I think goes to like uh, Senator Chaudhry's uh, time and time again reintroduction of the Hate Crimes Act, is that there's not, there isn't enough data collection, right? And why is there not enough data collection? Well, because law, local law enforcement agencies are not required to report hate crime or hate, it's hate incidents, right? It's not just stuff that rises to the level of hate crimes. And then also, uh, law enforcement isn't trained on how to respond to this. And speaking from personal experience, 2018, I went with a community member to the Raleigh Police Department and said, I was here for this. This is a hate crime. And the guy more or less responded with, I have an Indian friend. So that's not what's going on here, right? Well, 
And so, right, like, so it, it, it's not just that it's been happening and people aren't aware, it's that people don't want to be aware. People mm-hmm. don't want to hear the stories of what's happening to our community. I also remember that the morning after Donald Trump was elected, my sister, who at the time lived in a very suburban Cary neighborhood, was harassed and told, called a terrorist and told to go back to her country. This is right here in North Carolina, right? This is the uh, Legal Legal Review, and uh, we are having a uh, conversation about uh, violence and discrimination uh, experienced by the uh, Asian American uh, community and uh, Asian and African-American unity. And we have three outstanding guests with us, but we're gonna take our break uh, right now. And I want you to uh, stay with us and we'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II, and I'm a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to The Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show, or past episodes, or the latest happenings surrounding our host, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with our guests about the violence being perpetrated by members of the Asian American community. And we want to also talk about how we can bring our communities together. So the Asian American community, the African American community and how we can show solidarity for each other. We have with us here in our studio, Dave Chaudhry, who is the North Carolina State Senator for the 15th District, Chavi Konaru, who is the co-founder and executive director of North Carolina Asian Americans Together, or NCAT, and Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, a frequent guest who is a clinical law professor and supervising attorney for the juvenile clinic at North Carolina Central University School of Law. Um, So we've been talking about the barriers within the Asian community, and I'd like us to to shift gears because there are barriers, of course, we know, between the Asian community and the Black community. And um, as you all were talking about, this moment that we're in right now is allowing for cohesion between um, members of this very large, broad Asian community this is a moment as well for members of the Asian community and the Black community to come together. And, and as we begin that discussion, it, it may be helpful, um, Jay, for you to talk about um, your historic election and your ability to build coalitions in different you know, groups within North Carolina that led to your election. Can you share with us um, your one decision to 
to run and how you were able to build coalitions, kind of cross, uh, cut across those, uh, those barriers. Yeah, um, you know, I, I decided to run for the North Carolina State Senate in uh, 2015. My primary was in 2016. It was important for me to win the Democratic primary. And to your point, Professor Dawson, I mean, a lot of that is based on coalition building. Um, I, I've been redistricted several times, but my, my initial state Senate district that I ran in was in the Cary Morrisville downtown Raleigh. So it was really, um, it was African Americans, uh, Asian Americans in, in Cary and Morrisville, and then uh, really Caucasian white voters in, in the downtown Raleigh Cary area. And, you know, to answer your question, um, I, I, you know, I think it's important to do a number of things. I mean, I think one is just the importance of listening uh, and not, uh, and not, assuming that you know what the answers are to each of these communities. Uh, but secondly, I also think that uh, one of the things that I, I learned a long time ago, I had the opportunity to work, um, actually had the opportunity to work for uh, an Asian American candidate in Eastern Tennessee almost 25 years ago. His mother was from Japan, his father was from India and he ran in Eastern Tennessee. I was sent down to Chattanooga to help him secure the endorsement of the only African American um, organization there, I, 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 the main political leader down in Chattanooga was a Meharry uh, medical graduate, and he, it was called the Meharry House. I lived at the top floor of his house, and I spent my entire summer in, in the communities of Chattanooga. When I, one thing, in the Black community of Chattanooga, one thing I realized is it really almost doesn't matter whether you might be darker skinned or not, but at the end of the day, people want to look at your track record in that community. And I think that holds true in the Black community. I think it holds true in the Asian American community, people want to know that you're sincere in your beliefs and that you also have a track record. And that's something that I learned um, a long time ago. And I think that you know, you've got to be able to prove that what you, that, that you've rolled up your sleeves and have worked on behalf of these communities. And I think that we have to do more of that. And I think, you know, to your point, we have to also get out of our own communities and align ourselves with other communities um, when we, we see that those communities need help. Um, I think one thing that is often overlooked, I think, by members of the Asian American community are, is the fact that the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 would have never passed if it weren't for the, um, the Voting Rights Act of 65. I mean, the Civil Rights Act really laid the foundation for opening up immigration to this country that is the direct result of why my parents are here. Right. I mean, the Immigration and Nationality Act was a race based preference that was given primarily to Northern Europeans that they opened up and allowed for more Asians uh, to come to this country. Um, we, we, we can't forget the fact that there is a tie between uh, Martin Luther King and Mahatma Gandhi um, and, and, and the fact that, uh, that that the fact that Gandhi actually you know, began his non his, his study around nonviolence from Thoreau. So in some ways we come full circle from America to Asia to back to America. Um, and we, you know, we shouldn't forget. And I, I think it's very exciting to me that with, with our vice president Kamala Harris, in many ways, she is a direct result of that now, right? Of a, of a, of an Asian Indian mother and a Jamaican father that is really the product of, of what makes this country great. And so um, I, you know, I think it, I, I think to the point of the show, uh, we have a lot of work to do to come together. I mean, I think this is a, this is an opportunity for us to come together. I think as Chavi and Professor Mitchell have said, and, 
you know, I, and, and the, and the introduction of the hate crimes bill that I refiled a couple of weeks ago, I think presents that opportunity because it really focuses on trying to bring different uh, communities together that are otherwise marginalized to really address these issues that we've been talking about the program, uh, to make sure that we have the right reporting data and that we try to require, encourage law enforcement to really reach out to these communities and better understand what's going on in these communities so they can better reflect uh, the, 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 the hate crimes that may be taking place in those communities. If I could, I, I would add to that as far as like opening up the, um, the alliances more or, or cultivating the alliances between, the, for instance, the African-American um, community and the Asian community. Um, I take a very personal approach to that. And so I would encourage um, others who are like me to take that approach and then, you know, other individuals to, you know, take it a, a personal stance and say, because for me personally, because I'm African-American and because I'm Korean, I take it upon myself to educate both sides of my family, both groups on the other as much as I possibly can. That is the one time where I don't mind being the spokesperson, you know, for the other group. Um, now, of course, I don't necessarily like having to be the spokesperson for all African-American people and all Asians and all of that. Um, but if I have to be that, you know, hopefully I'm equipping, educating myself enough and I have enough life experiences where I, people will want to hear from me. Right. And so I take that that personal approach. And so I love the fact that we're having this kind of discussion. Hopefully we're encouraging folks to have more discussions like this and be open to the education, because I can genuinely say that not so much on my African-American side and, and God bless my mother's soul. Um, but there were lots of hard conversations that I had to have with my mother in particular, um, and the Asian side and the Korean side, because she was so, so Korean. <laughs> I mean, she was, she was Korean. And so she was so engulfed in her own culture. And because my brother and I are her, were her children, she couldn't understand the racism and, you know, the different things that we experienced. Um, she, she saw, we could talk to her about these different things, but I had to have really hard conversations with her about, you know, I, under, I know mom because you're Korean and you just don't get that because the cup, she just saw me as her beautiful daughter and my my brother and I as her, her really smart children. She didn't see us as her biracial or her Af African-American children, right? So we had to educate her in a lot of ways about what all this was about. And that's a hard thing on, on the Korean side and the Asian side because there's that culturally, that respect there, that that is the crux of everything that we do um, in most communities, right? And those are, there are so many similarities in our cultures that if we just had conversations, we would we would know and we would appreciate. For instance, like I said, having respect for your elders is huge on the Asian in the Asian community as well as in the African American community. So a lot of times, my mom wouldn't understand. Like you know, I hear what you're saying, but I'm the elder. I'm your mother. You just need to listen to me. And I'm like, but I need to explain this to you, and like you know, all these different things. So hopefully, as a younger person, these young Asian Americans and young African Americans um, are willing to educate themselves and help educate their elders and their and the senior members of their communities and bring them to the table and say, you know, your wisdom is, is necessary. Your guidance is necessary on both sides. You know what I mean? There's wisdom and guidance from the younger folks too. Um, and I would also say and point out that while what may seem to be a very minor thing can be really huge. Like for instance, people having an affinity towards 
all these different food, you know, Japanese food and Chinese food and, you know, the cultures and the different things. That is like nowadays huge, right? People pride themselves on, I'm willing to try anything. I'm willing to eat anything. I'm willing to, you know, all that, go experience these cultures. Whereas when I was younger, that was not the case. Yeah. You know what I mean? So we can use that to our advantage. You know what I mean? Use that and say, all right, if you're coming into my restaurant or you're coming into my you know, community, let help let me, let's talk let's have use this as a venue to have some conversation and talk some things out and let me educate you and I, i'm not like what you think i am or you know we can come together and learn that more of what our similarities are than our differences well of late there there have been a couple of uh, uh solidarity uh events that have occurred here in the uh triangle and then in uh, other parts of the uh of the country in response to more particularly what happened uh, in, uh, in Atlanta. Uh, what other kinds of events uh, do, we, do we have going on that's designed to uh, provide the education uh, that, uh, that Dorothy was uh, making reference to uh, earlier and to help people better understand uh, the cultural similarities and the uh, unfortunately the differences uh, of treatment uh, that people receive because of their uh, uh, their, their, their version or their uh, place in this people of color uh, conundrum. Yeah, I can speak to that. Um, I think what I'll start by saying is that uh, we just discussed how Black and Asian solidarity isn't a novel concept, and that you know there's there's it goes it goes as far back as like you know 1950s and and strategizing together on decolonization and the thing is and and both um senator chaudhry and professor mitchell touched on this education piece is that when we say in a group in a room full of attorneys that we all know about the connection between martin luther king and uh gandhi but we don't all know, right? Like the broader community doesn't know that. Right. They don't know a lot about our history. Um, they don't know, truthfully, they don't know a lot about probably their own history. Mm -hmm. And that, that applies to both black and Asian communities because it's not taught in schools, right? Oh. And so, yes, we can do more in terms of providing that education for community members at the same time, I think this is a bigger issue where we got to change the curriculum. We have to start teaching people about their own like history. Um, and then I'll also add that, you know, um, since the Atlanta shootings, I've done a lot of media interviews and I keep getting asked to educate folks mm -hmm. on and it's exhausting. And I remember some of my colleagues who are working in the Black Lives Movement about a year ago saying the same thing. And so I think just also acknowledging that like, it is not just on us to do that labor because it is, it's a lot of emotional labor, especially when you're also reeling from an event that's impacted you and your community. The other thing I was gonna say was just that, um, I lost my train of thought a little bit. Um, so, and this is going back to also what Professor Mitchell was saying about how difficult it is to talk about these things in the Asian community. There's anti-Blackness kind of ingrained in the community, right? And it, you know, I know I'm kind of like going back on this, but 
colorism, right? Like even like within the Indian South Asian community, we are discriminatory towards people who are darker. And, you know, I remember friends of mine feeling like, oh no, I'm gonna get mistaken for a black person. Like, I mean, it's, it's real, right? So what we're, what we're doing and what I think the important, I think solidarity events and, and, and being out in the streets together is wonderful. But I think along with education, we gotta open the lines of communication because I think that we're just, we're all kind of saying the same thing, but we're not listening to each other. And so what our org is currently working on is a kind of a racial justice roundtable where we would be able to sit down and just talk about this stuff because I've seen the discrimination on both sides, right? This is interpersonal capacity scrolling through social media. I've seen black people saying, well, why should we care about anti-Asian discrimination when we are treated badly by, you know, whatever this ethnicity and the flip side of it, right? And the, you know, the, the, um, Thai uh, grandmother who was just recently attacked. We got a name that 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 she was attacked by what appeared I I don't know for sure but it appeared to be a black man in the video right and so that also raises those mm -hmm. racial tensions and I feel like we kind of skirt around talking about it, but that doesn't represent the whole community. That doesn't give us a reason to like start with the anti-blackness and so. I just feel like we're not talking about this stuff enough because it's uncomfortable and it's not just uncomfortable for Asians, it's uncomfortable for everybody. Um, and the last thing I'll say is that one of the big issues that is going to prevent us from coming together unless it's like named head on is where people stand on law enforcement. I mean, the reality is that people don't understand what defunding the police or abolishing the police even means but we're not having that conversation. So it feels like, oh, well, if these Asians are more conservative or establishment, then they don't support this. But that's not, I mean, these are just terms, right? Like nobody's talking about what does this actually mean? And I, I think that that's unfortunately a really important element of moving forward. If I could answer the question a, a, a little differently, Professor Joyner. So you asked about what kind of events are going on. So one, some of the events that are actually going on that I'm seeing pop up more, which I'm so super excited to see, is that there are more grass community grassroots organizations that are um, providing education forms and um, protests and different things like that. I've also seen, um, just to throw out, I was super excited, I wanted to share this on here, is that the UNC System Faculty Assembly Anti-Asian Violence and Racism Call to Action and Caucus. And there's many more of those that are forming. You have, you know, your university groups, you have graduate groups, you have, you know, just all of these different groups. And I'm just so glad. And I hope that they continue to keep mo the momentum going and not just right now and then, die, you know, kind of die down. So. You, know, uh, you know, Professor Joyner, I'll, I'll say very quickly that um, coming together, you know, for, uh, fighting racism is important and we need to do more of that. But one thing that you come to realize is that we're just not spending enough time with each other um, as a community to get to know each other. And you know, when, I, when I think about you know, my experiences and spending time at uh, HBCU Law School, like North Carolina Central University, I mean, that is an education in and of itself. Yes. Because the fact of the matter is going to an HBCU versus 
um, a, a white private college that I went to for undergrad or an Ivy League uh, institution for a master's degree are very different um, educational experiences that really, um, for me, it, it forces you to have conversations that actually allows you to make for lifelong friends. Um, and are those the types of things that we are doing and continuing as adults? Now, I feel pretty fortunate because if anybody looks at the Senate Democratic Caucus, we're pretty darn diverse. Um, and I will also say that the two Asian American senators uh, who both happen to be central law graduates. Um, and it was exciting for me to have Senator Muhammad join me because um, it actually creates a really great opportunity to educate other members of your caucus. There's always more power with two than one, right? Right. Um, and so, I, and so, you know, I, I think this conversation has been wonderful because it really forces me to think about the fact that we just, we just need to do more socializing uh, to Professor Mitchell's point, you know, we need to just get together, uh, break bread, eat together, drink together. Uh, Professor Jordy, I'm thinking about my our my time back uh, back at the law school. We used to all get together. Uh, now I don't think you ever joined us at Grill Fifty Five, but you know we we had a we had a good time at that juke joint that used to be down there off of uh, Highway Fifty Five. But I mean that those were magical evenings because mm -hmm. it was everybody from the law school from all different walks of life that came together and. Our, our common struggle was trying to, you know, get through these law school classes, but it, it just, it, it raises a real, I think, challenge for us that we just need to do more together. I, I totally agree. And I actually do that every day. I wouldn't say every single day, but I have so many friends that are so much more educated on the Korean culture and the struggles that we have because I'm half Korean. And so they've come to my home and talked to my mom. They eat my mom's food. You know, we go to the Korean restaurant now. And so they feel convicted now if they start thinking these crazy thoughts and, you know, different things. Or then now they're standing up for Asian Americans in general because they have a friend that they know, even though maybe African American, she's Korean too, and she's not going to be okay if I just sit back and say nothing. So, totally well, agree. I have to say this, this is real quick, so that my team doesn't get really mad at me. But uh, in terms of events, on the twenty first <laughs> of April, we're doing a lobby day um, in support of the hate crimes legislation that Senator Chaudhry introduced, and we are hoping that this is going to be. Uh, ethnically and racially very diverse coming together. So I had to pitch that. <laughs> All right. This has been such a wonderful, rich discussion. We can't thank the three of you enough. We appreciate your insight, your candor, and we're going to have to have the three of you back again um, and make sure that we continue these really, really important conversations. Um, we want to thank our guests, Jay Chaudhry, who is the North Carolina State Senator for the 15th District, Chavi Konaru, who is the co-founder and executive director of the North Carolina Asian Americans Together, or NCAT, and Dorothy Harrison Mitchell, clinical law professor at North Carolina Central University School of Law. And as always, we would like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.